Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. Climate change and global warming. They're part of everyday conversation and for good reason. They're real and are having an impact on the planet and our lives. Today, we're going to hear how our changing earth has brought together two unlikely allies, science and religion. We'll also find out how climate change may affect your mental health. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn how these worldly alterations may end up leaving you thirsty for something other than water. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to show you how our changing environment is affecting our human existence. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. I think it's safe to assume you've all heard of climate change and the consequences it presents to our environment and our lives. After all, the idea began some 50 years ago in 1970, April 30th to be exact. The New York Times was discussing a new theory about how our world's climate might be changing. In the article, a scientific researcher from Johns Hopkins named George Benton stated, we are entering an era when man's effects on his climate will become dominant. It should have been accepted back then. It should have been welcomed. It should have led to drastic changes in the way we live to protect our planet. But it didn't. Instead, it began a debate that continues to this day. That's not awesome. I know. I'm sure you've also heard that 97% of scientists agree that we as humans have some responsibility. So why aren't we all agreeing to this in the public and doing something about it? Now, you might expect me to list all the alternate reasons as to why climate change isn't due to human activity, the so-called red side. You might then expect me to argue for the blue side to prove them wrong. Instead, I'm going to list a few statements on the cause of climate change and global warming. I'm just not going to reveal the source. Not yet. I just want you to hear it without any context. Burning of fossil fuels and solid biomass release hazardous chemicals into the air. Climate change caused by fossil fuels and other human activities poses an existential threat to Homo sapiens. By moving rapidly to a zero-carbon energy system, humanity can prevent catastrophic climate change while cutting the huge disease burden caused by air pollution and climate change. We advocate a mitigation approach that factors in the low-probability, high-impact warming projections, such as the 1 in 20 chances of a 6-degree warming by 2100. There you have it. I bet you can't resist trying to assume who wrote these points. But let me tell you something. It's not Al Gore. These statements come from... The Vatican. That's right! The religious headquarters for the Catholic Church. 
These are direct quotes from the Climate Change, Air Pollution and Health Workshop, which took place last year at the Declaration of the Health of People, Health of Planet and Our Responsibility meeting at Vatican City in November. It was organized and hosted by, and even I was stunned to learn this, the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Now, as long as I've lived, I've never seen such a close link between science and religion. They have come close a few times, but most researchers, including myself, tend to remember what happened with Galileo Galilei and other scientists who went against the church's opinion. It's never been good. Yet, these statements are there for everyone to read. When I came across this workshop last year, my first thought was, why would the Vatican of all places try to get involved in climate change? I mean, it states in the Bible that the earth is for humans to use as they see fit. We have dominion over it. Yet, for some reason, the church has led an exodus from the words in Genesis to create a new kind of testament. To help me answer why this happened, I've reached out to someone who was at that conference. Her name is Dr. Lisa Van Susteren, and she is a general and forensic psychiatrist. But that's not all. She's one of the strongest advocates for a sustainable planet. She's published in the literature, sat on university advisory boards, and started her own sustainable food company. She even has a Wikipedia page. To put it lightly, she's all that and a bag of carbon-neutral chips. She joins me from Bethesda, Maryland. Before we get into what happened at the Vatican, I just have to say I haven't seen much in common between science and the church. I mean, to be honest, they haven't really seen eye to eye since that whole Copernicus thing happened back in the 16th century. And for you kids out there, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, just Google it. So as a person who bases her work on science and research, how did it feel to be invited to this workshop? Well, first of all, we got to say we got to let bygones be bygones. What happens in the in the 1500s stays in the 1500s. <laughs> so we, we've moved on from that little incident. Uh, actually, the interesting thing is that the Pontifical Academy of Sciences has had its roots since about the 1500s in various ways. Uh, on the panel now of uh, the members of the Pontifical Academy are people from all walks of scientific life, whether it's astrophysics or biodiversity, chemistry, you name it, Nobel Prize winners, really very, very smart people. And their goal, interestingly, very specifically in the mission, is to advise the Pope and also to bring other scientists together for the purpose of breaking down silos so that they can bring information to the public. So it's as sterling uh, a now mission as could possibly be a very much, I would say, offsetting earlier blemishes. I don't know. I mean, do you use emojis at all? Because I do. And, and right now I am so using the my mind is blown emoji everywhere. I would have loved to have been there. Okay, so... Take me into the room. Take us all into the room. First, what I want to do is tell you that the building itself 
is dates uh, from about the 1500s or at least the shell, maybe late 1500s. And just approaching it, you are deep into the gardens, the magical gardens, really, of the Vatican. And I swear, there wasn't a dead leaf on the ground. Not a blade of grass was bent. All the leaves are in order. It was the most gorgeous, spectacular place. It was in November, so it was kind of there was kind of a chill, but it was absolutely spectacularly gorgeous. And and the building is full of frescoes and uh, beautiful arches and paintings, and it, it was just unbelievable. I was just in awe before anyone opened his mouth or her mouth because of so outrageously beautiful. So you really have harmony just walking into the building. Yeah, and you can tell, honestly, Jason, you can tell that I don't know a lot about architecture, but you can see that there's a certain symmetry, a mathematical geometric respect that was uh, given in constructing this building. So your eye really finds this sense of balance and a peace, almost like a restorative feeling looking at it. That, that was just, it, that was so much fun, I couldn't see straight. Oh, my goodness. Can we go in the room now, please? Okay, we're in the room. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, you know, there are four sides. It's square. And, and up in the front were the sort of aristocracy of the group, the, the, the people who are on the academy itself. And then around the other three sides were the rest of us who were going to be speaking. And some, you know, were, uh, had a more important role than others. Uh, but basically, it was, this was, uh, I wouldn't, I, I can't say the peanut gallery, hardly. But I mean, we were the invited guests. Okay, you know, I've actually done this before in Canada, but it was in Parliament, not the Vatican. And I've been in a parliamentary room with those four walls. And, and you have parliamentarians on one side, and you've got the people who are going to speak on the other. And let me tell you something. It can get a bit contentious. There might be a little bit of pushback. It sometimes can get a little rowdy. Did you see any of that in this particular workshop? <laughs> oh, not externally. I have to say, I have to admit to anybody who's listening, that I'm kind of a, a little bit of a fault finder. So, you know, I was thinking, <laughs> well, they should have done this and they shouldn't have done that and how come, whatever. So there was that stuff from me, but there was no need to externalize it except... At one point, and this is the one place that I sort of banded with uh, two other people who were there. One is Jeff Sachs, whom you may know as yeah. an economist yeah. at Columbia, a very well-known guy. And the other person is this brilliant doctor, not that Jeff is brilliant too, but Mimi Guarneri, who is from California Academy of Integrated Health Medicine. And the three of us kind of started to pound on the fact that it was essential that among all the other things that we were talking about that we need to do to create a safe planet – that eating a plant-based diet had to be in that declaration. And it looked uh, a few times as if it was going over the heads of, I remember this is Rome, right? <laughs> so we were very pleased. Ultimately, if you look in that declaration, among all of the other things that everybody's been saying, was that the transition to a plant-based diet is essential to preserving the planet and feeding uh, the billions of people that are going to be new, uh, newly born and uh, are, are going to need to be fed, especially in a planet that's going to be compromised as far as food security is concerned. So if there was any kind of... Cont ah, there was a few, a few dinging bells that occurred uh, uh, at less than the amount of time they should have been given, but whatever. That's pretty standard as sort of sixth grader stuff. 
Oh, yeah. We all know that from Law & Order when the yellow light comes on and then suddenly the red light comes on and you just have to stop. Would that it was lights. These were bells. It is the Vatican. So, I mean, you come out with an incredibly strong statement, and it honestly looks like it goes against pretty much what a number of people who signify themselves as the red team might like. And yet this is coming from a religious group. The head of a religion is saying things that are potentially going to go against what some of the flock believes. I mean, have you seen any kind of backlash as a result? Uh, let me back it up a little bit by saying that this is not a newsflash to say that this pope uh, has been a, um, an acquired taste for some people. Uh, he's an, an amazing uh, person, and I think a deeply inspiring person, and um, there's a, a decency about him, I think, that, you, you, that, is, that is stands, has him ha- standing head and shoulders above so many people. But the people within the church, and some who have been there for a long time, have not agreed with some of the things that he has said. But in the U.S., many of the bishops, when he released Laudato Si, of course, his famous uh, uh, encyclical about the need to care for the earth, many of the bishops here uh, in, and cardinals here in the U.S. were uh, dragging their feet and didn't say much about it. I don't know what's happening right now, but in the first few months, it was not address the way one would have thought. So this is, not, this is a pope uh, who is making waves. And if you look around the world, I guess we could say maybe we need someone to inspire us to be our better selves and bring out our better angels. And certainly everything that comes out of that declaration uh, from the Pontifical Academy finds its roots uh, in Laudato Si, and I, I must add, uh, written in some of the most, I think, beautiful language, uh, really transcendent language that I've heard in a long time. So uh, that's how I see the Declaration attuned to the Pope, and uh, whatever is said in the Declaration that uh, reminds people of Laudato Si, those who didn't like it, well, they aren't going to like the Declaration either, but we're very happy to stand by it. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a media report recently that said some of the people who live in, shall we say, the places that don't necessarily believe in climate change have all of a sudden had a change of faith. Suddenly, they believe in climate change. I have to tell you, it has nothing to do with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Instead, it has everything to do with Florence and Michael. And I'm not talking about the saints here. I'm talking about the hurricanes that slammed into the United States. If it takes that amount to be able to change minds. Do you feel that even with what the church has said, the only way we're going to see acceptance in this larger community of people is really through disaster? Well, this is, of course, a very important point, and that is that Mother Nature is now bringing the message right to our doorstep. Uh, In the past, uh, before some of recent extreme weather events, it could still remain something abstract that was happening to other people. But, you know, now we are personally, and there's nothing, again, like having it happen within your own home to have you question uh, why uh, this this dramatic change is occurring. And so people can't afford to distance themselves in time and place. That's what used to be the comment that they were not convinced, uh, and, and experts would say, because it was distant in time and place. It's not anymore. So Mother Nature is bringing this news home to us. And it, uh, as for what faith uh, brings to us, 
every sector has something which can be valuable depending upon the audience to help us awaken uh, to what needs to be done. Now, as Dr. Van Sustren said, getting people to believe in climate change isn't particularly easy when it isn't affecting them directly. Now, to stay biblical, you could say that there are quite a few doubting Thomases out there. But even if people don't actually experience the physical effects of climate change in person, there still may be troubles down the road. It's all due to something that happens naturally in our brains and leads us to fear and even panic when confronted by something that is bigger than what we can comprehend. Back in 1954, an American sociologist by the name of Enrico Quantarelli came up with three reasons why we tend to worry, even if we are not directly affected. The first is the inability to identify or accept the threat. The second is a collective powerlessness to stop the threat. Finally, there is a feeling of individual isolation leaving one to fend for his or herself. Looking back at some of the most destructive events of climate change, such as hurricanes Florence and Michael, you can see how a person might experience these three conditions. As for what happens when the concern settles in, it acts like a virus, spreading across our thoughts and increasing our stress. If we allow this to go on for too long, it can lead to mental health issues, including depression. It might be hard to appreciate how climate could affect our mental state, but I have some very uplifting news. Dr. Van Sustren is also a specialist in how climate change can affect mental health. Well, first of all, I think we better uh, reassess the phrase climate change and mental health because it's going to be anything but mental health, frankly. Uh, unless uh, major changes occur very quickly, we can anticipate that there's going to be a grievous um, uh, setting uh, for people and that it is going to be extremely challenging and we are going to see a lot of uh, conditions that really rise to the level of uh, clinical uh, conditions like uh, major depression, generalized anxiety, which all of which we're already seeing, post-traumatic stress disorder, even abuse of alcohol and drugs as people try to cope. We find that domestic violence follows extreme weather events. So these uh, uh, this data is already rolling in now from extreme weather events and some chronic climate conditions like drought. And, uh, but what we're facing in the future is that as we see things getting worse, you know, you do the math. What happens when you know that these harms are being unleashed and you can't get the genie back in the bottle? Uh, you know, it's going to be tough. Think about it this way. It, it, when you, you know, suppose you, your house has been burned down or flooded or uh, ripped up by a storm and you've lost your belongings and, and maybe your pets and your community has been wiped out. You know, think about what that would do to you psychologically. It is a profound uh, uh, aggression uh, to your sense of stability. And when people are profoundly challenged like that, you know, it can breed a whole lot of trouble, one of which is that we kind of can sometimes regress. And boy, you don't want a society regress because we do all sorts of dumb stuff uh, when we regress to a more primitive state, which is just kind of an irrational, fear-based uh, platform upon which we make decisions. And that ain't good. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm a trained microbiologist and immunologist, and, and what you're telling me sounds very similar to when a person is infected with a chronic pathogen. I mean, you get sick, you start to feel down, you begin to feel depressed, and you may even become antagonistic to your friends and even your family. 
you know, maybe I'm just completely off base here, but do you really think that climate change in its own kind of way is a pathogen? Oh, absolutely. With the impacts very much like the uh, framework or model that we use for disease, because in any kind of confrontation like that, whether it's an illness or or some kind of condition, uh, this causes enormous amount of stress. And we know that stress uh, on our bodies is exceedingly toxic, whether it's from an illness or whether it's simply or simply or psychological trauma. Uh, That stress uh, really. affects every part of our body and of course it causes inflammation and we know that inflammation is linked to just dozens of conditions and illnesses so you're absolutely right uh, there's very much a parallel in that context i do want to ask you one thing i was reading for this segment and saw an article by an author katie hayes and she said something about climate change that made me scratch my head she basically was saying that climate change can also bring and i quote altruism, compassion, optimism, and foster a sense of meaning and personal growth. It just seems so strange when you're talking about salvaging, rebuilding, consoling others as a result of climate change, that it could bring people together. I mean, is this, is this really the way our social spirit works, or am I missing something? Okay, well, we have to talk about that in terms of really the timeline. And that is that initially after a disaster, yes, we do pull together. People help each other, and it can bring out the best in us. That's just terrific. We share things. We welcome people into our homes. We uh, do all the things that show that generosity of spirit. But here's what happens, Jason. If these conditions continue and we continue to feel stressed, and resources continue to be scarce, and we've got institutions that are not able to help us in the way we anticipate, I can tell you, and if anybody, or the people who are listening can imagine this, your nerves begin to fray. So all this great talk about post-traumatic growth and how altruistic and all the rest that we are, you know, I'm not sure that it's entirely realistic to think that that's a society-wide phenomenon after a certain amount of stress has been present in a person's life. It just begins to dwindle. And I think most of us can recognize that that's uh, the likely scenario. So really, the pathogen example fits. We see people caring for the sick until everyone gets sick, and then all of a sudden it becomes a panic. Exactly. And when you do not, yeah, and it, well, right now, I think one of the chief problems is that we don't see any daylight at the end of the tunnel that's concrete, certainly not here in the U.S., where there's been a systematic attempt to scale back regulations and laws and policies that are aimed at trying to uh, protect the planet, decarbonize us, get a, lower our greenhouse gases. So this uh, pr- the sentiment now that we're just in a very black hole means that we are going to be struggling even more. It might very well be that if we get some, uh, we start making uh, some progress and we start seeing some distance, that people get a contagious spirit. And then you might find more of that altruistic, cooperative uh, spirit. But the outside has got to change before I think you're going to see something like that. Okay, I'm going to end with this one last question, and it's primarily for the listeners. If anyone out there actually feels burdened by climate change, and I know some people who actually feel low as a result of seeing what's going on, they're not being directly affected, though. They just see it on the news. But 
even for these people, what would you offer as the best advice based on what you've seen over the years? Now, obviously, this is not clinical advice or doctor's directions. I just want your personal view on what people could do to help themselves deal with what is going on out there. Well, you know, Jason, you said it all when you said just sitting there watching the news. That's the problem. Because what happens is that, yes, we can feel grief and anger and despair uh, and many other sentiments. But the idea is that you take the energy of those emotions and you turn them into concrete action, empowering action. Every uh, uh, book on psychology tells us that if we try to unpack a problem and find solutions, that we're going to feel better. And so I look at it in three parts, uh, three Ps. First of all, personal. What's your personal carbon footprint? How can you reduce uh, your personal carbon footprint? One of the choices you can make in your life, which, by the way, influence your family members and other people around you, that will mean that you have have done everything that you can personally, and what you can't change, you can offset. You can buy tree offsets. Uh, there are plenty of places where you can bring the carbon down by planting trees and contributing money. That's the personal first step. Then the other is that professionally, wherever you are, where do you work? Uh, if, are you in the health uh, field? Are you a scientist? Are you, uh, you know, government? It doesn't matter where you are, but. Or, and or your life in the community, there are dozens of groups uh, probably at your work and certainly in your community that can help to find ways to green or clean up your community consistent with sustainable living. So becoming involved with other groups, community groups, and working with people where you work uh, to make that transition and to be talking about how we can move towards renewable solutions is a very empowering action especially because once you start doing stuff in a group, you feel that solidarity. And that feeling of solidarity with others is a, a very potent, uh, uh, that effective measure to improve your, your health and outlook. Last of all, political. Oh, I should have stopped you when I had the chance. Right. This is where we're all looking. You've got to change the upstream impact, change the policies, change the politicians, and we can have our solutions begin to materialize right away. Okay, class, we know climate change is real. We know that there's human involvement. Now it's time to learn one of the most troubling consequences. Now we're not talking about more hurricanes, floods, forest fires, or landslides. We're talking about a loss of something that is incredibly important to many Canadians and maybe even to you, beer. That's right. Today's lesson is all about how climate change could end up leaving you dry in the future. Now, the details are contained in an article that sounds as scary as its implication. Decreases in global beer supply due to extreme drought and heat. And it's published in Nature Plants. This week, I brought in one of the authors of that study as our guest teacher. His name is Dr. Nathan Mueller, and he's a professor of Earth System Science at the University of California, Irvine. Now, Nathan, I would normally say hello, but in this case, I just have to start with Say it isn't so. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah, there are many, many alarming consequences of climate change from sea level rise, biodiversity loss to heat waves. But I have to say people are really concerned about their pint of beer. We've had um, an incredible outpouring of interest uh, in this study. Why don't you take us through the study and explain to us how you're trying to break our hearts? Sure, sure. 
Yeah, so our analysis uh, starts with barley, which is, of course, the main ingredient in beer. Uh, We are looking at what constitutes really, really bad weather conditions for barley across the world. So these are years with concurrent extreme heat and extreme drought. We're using a crop model to actually simulate the growth and development. You can think of a bunch of little barley plants growing around the world. Um, and and how that barley is impacted by the weather conditions during those years. You know, that sounds like a lot of computer stuff just to make us care about climate change. It It is. It's a lot of complicated computer stuff. It's a lot of data. It's a lot of models. But the exciting thing is that we've actually been able to piece together um, the data from the climate side, from the barley production, all the way to a model of the world food economy. So we can actually get to uh, changes in prices and consumption of beer around the world during these extreme events. Now, I know about the massive droughts that we've seen. 1972, which wasn't included in your study, by the way. 2007. And we actually saw impacts. We saw it with rice. We saw it with wheat. So, sake, problem, yes. Vodka. Definitely a problem, yes. But never barley. I mean, come on. Barley is grown in drought-resistant conditions. Is it really going to get that bad? Well, droughts and heat waves can pose serious challenges for crops all over the world and all sorts of different crops. Uh, In the U.S., for example, we had a major drought and heat wave across the Corn Belt in 2012. And I remember it very, very vividly because I took a break from finishing up my PhD to go on a week-long bike tour across Iowa in the middle of July, as one does. And I'm originally from that area, so it was pretty memorable to be biking past all of these drought-stricken fields for 10 hours a day for a whole week. And I can remember the sight of those sad-looking corn plants and also the pain in my legs from biking for 10 hours a day. <laughs> but getting, getting back to the study, the climate extremes that we're looking at are based on concurrent one, one in 100-year probabilities of drought and high temperatures. So these are years that we really, you know, they're beyond the historical record to have, or mostly beyond the historical record to be experiencing such bad heat and drought in a single year. Okay, I I get it. I mean, how many times have we heard about a one in 100 year event happen like every single year over the last five years? I mean, it's happening everywhere. Look, I live in Edmonton and we're now having to get used to the fact that we have forest fire smoke in our city every summer. We don't have forests here for that kind of fire, but that's just the way it is. So, In that light, do you really think that we're going to have to just simply get used to these changes and deal with the consequences, even if it means losing our beer? When we talk about climate change, uh, sometimes we use the analogy of loading the dice, right? You're just more likely to end up with these, um, for example, a warmer year every year now, of course. And... um, and what we see is that the severity and frequency of those of those droughts and heat waves um, increases as global average temperatures rise. Um, so we see more extreme events later in the century. Do you think that there's any way that we can keep our beer safe? I mean, whenever I see hurricanes coming in, I see people buying up all the water and the food and they're squirreling in a way getting ready for the worst. 
are we at a point now where we should just start stockpiling our beer? <laughs> I don't think you need to worry too much about stock, stockpiling your beer right now. Of course, it won't keep that well even if you do. So what you're telling me, and what everyone out there I'm sure is hearing, is that we should really support our scientists when they talk about climate change, if not for your own self, than for the sake of your beer. That's, that's right. That's right. Two main things that we can do. One is we can support our farmers as they try and adapt to a changing climate, exploring new cultivars, uh, changing their management, and so on, um, while acknowledging that it is going to be difficult to, extract, uh, to adapt to these um, extreme events. And the second big thing that we can do to safeguard our beer supply is to just simply minimize the degree of climate change that we experience. We see a much less frequent and extreme uh, conditions under a low emissions world than a high emissions world. So supporting renewable energy, energy efficiency, and all other efforts to deal with the, the climate problem um, might really pay off for our future enjoyment of beer. Cheers to that. Well, that's it for this episode of the Super Awesome Science Show. I hope it has convinced you to discuss our warming planet over some cool ones, of course. If you have any questions or want to make a comment, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. And for ideas longer than 280 characters, you can always email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to get more people to find the podcast. Thanks again. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.